Well, it's a glorious day, and I've actually managed to pin down this gentleman that I've wanted to speak to for a long time. Uh, this gentleman was um, a regular on my radio show, and I love his opinions. He has helped so many hundreds of thousands of people over the years. He uh, travels the world, which we'll talk about. It is, in fact, uh, Mike Scott, the consultant surgeon at Whiston and uh, St. Helens Hospital. And we're sitting in the most beautiful garden, tucked away somewhere on the world. Hello, Mike. Hello, Peter. Welcome now, to my home. Thank you very much indeed. This is a little bit special. If you hear any traffic in the background, it's a mile away. It's just... It's ridiculous. This is beautiful. Mike, we've never had the chance to talk about who you are. So let's start with that before we talk about your career. Give us a, a, a flavour of you growing up. Oh, I'm a bit of a mongrel, actually, Peter. Um, my dad was a pilot in the Royal Air Force. So every couple of years we used to move. I went to five or six different primary schools and... Um, Eventually, when I went to secondary school, it was in a little market town in Lincolnshire, a place called Louth. Beautiful place. Um, times never caught up with Louth. I go back occasionally. And the school there suited me. I fitted in really well. Uh, and then the time came for my dad to be posted again. And I said to my parents, I don't want to move schools. And so the RAF paid for me to be a boarder at the school. My mum was heartbroken, but it was a fantastic time. I loved it. I developed as a person. Um, I realised that I wanted to um, do medicine whilst I was at school. Not for any great altruistic reason, but mostly because I was good at sciences. And that seemed like a good career pathway. The one thing I knew I didn't want to do was surgery because... <laughs> I used to faint at the sight of blood. Um, that soon got out of my system when I went to medical school. I went to medical school in Liverpool. I started there in 1973. And I had the most wonderful time at medical school. I met some fantastic people. But most of all, I developed my love for surgery. And it actually started in a little hospital in Birkenhead. Uh, you may remember, Peter, Birkenhead General. And I went there, I was the only medical student in the whole hospital. And a now departed surgeon, who actually used to live opposite you, uh, who was a surgical registrar, came and made me go to theatre. I said, oh, I'll faint. And he took me to theatre. And I even remember the case now, even though it was back in 1975. And he said, um, put your hand in here. I was scrubbed at the table. I, oh, I can't do that. He said, put it in and open your eyes, because I had my eyes closed. And from that moment, I knew what I wanted. I was addicted. I, get, I went to the operating theatre whenever I could. I knew 100% that that was my destiny. Let me ask you to explain why. Well, we hear why that moment happened, but what is it about surgery that gives you this passion? I... I a lot of people have asked me that, Peter. I'm not entirely sure. I think it's because it's an instant fix. And over the years, I've realised that, and this sounds terrible, but it, but I'm probably not too bad at it. And I I enjoy the operating. I enjoy being able to, well, it sounds crass, but make people better and sometimes save lives. I'll tell you a story. 
just two days ago I was in clinic at the hospital and a man who'd been a patient of mine 25 years ago he and he'd come back for a different problem an unrelated problem and he said to me and I, I didn't need to see him anymore I'd sorted out his most recent problem and he said I've never said this he said but thank you for saving my life 25 years ago and it really made me tear up a bit you know because I thought sometimes you forget that it's although it's a job it's a, it has a lot of impact on a lot of people and very difficult to explain it beyond that how do you enjoy a meal this is a ridiculous question but i've got to ask enjoy a meal enjoy making love enjoy doing everything do that you do in real life when you have seen people at the worst do you know i don't know how to put that is that a, how better could i have put that i um, I know what you're getting at, and, and again, a lot of people ask, oh, how do you do it? Ultimately, Peter, it, it's a job. I mean, you could say the same about a butcher. You could say the same about a lot of people in different jobs where, and I think my job is good because I, most of the time, make people better. But the actual physical part of cutting somebody, giving people pain to make their pain or their problem get better is a difficult concept I, I know for certain I've got a very big case to do tomorrow and the person I'm operating on is probably petrified from my point of view I know I can do it I feel really calm about it and when I turn up tomorrow morning I'll have my A game on and he'll be okay and so it's my job it's what I do and it's what I've done for over 45 years it's incredible have you seen huge changes in the world of surgery? Oh, enormous. And it's a constantly evolving specialty. For example, you can look at technical aspects, you can look at work practices, you can look at changes to diseases. For example, I had to give a lecture in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the use of um, operating robots a lot of operating theatres in every hospital now has a robot and in time every single operating room will have its own robot I believe it's not a pure robot in that the ro you don't say to the robot go and do this operation it's robotically assisted but that sort of thing is science fiction if somebody had told me 40 years ago oh you'll have a robot that will do all this I would never have believed them and so but our understanding of disease moves on as well our understanding of physical problems moves on and so we're able to develop techniques to adapt and to try and improve all the time how did you feel when robots started to move into the operating table into the operating theater um well bizarrely i was a little bit involved in it years and years ago probably in the mid 1990s when they were at a very basic stage um, but I've always known they were coming and part of me hopes that the robots are used appropriately for example in the late 1980s and early 1990s keyhole surgery laparoscopic surgery very much exploded onto the scene and there are some operations that really lend themselves to keyhole surgery. Um, 
but people were performing operations using keyhole surgery just because they could rather than because they should. And now keyhole surgery has found a phenomenal niche in surgery. What's happening now is the robot is doing the same. People are trying to fit robots in to certain operations where the robot perhaps isn't the best option. Um, so all my feeling was, I think it's a wonderful piece of kit, the, the, the operating robot, and it, very expensive as well, a couple of million pounds, but it's the future. And so I don't feel threatened by it. Uh, in fact, I, I'm quite envious that I'm towards the end of my career now, because if I know that if I was more at the start, I would be fighting to be on that robot every single minute of every single day. I'm talking to Mike Scott. Mike, how long does it take uh, for somebody young that's listening now to become a surgeon? Okay, so you have to go through medical school and that either takes four, five or six years depending on where you do it. And then you have an obligatory two years working in a hospital, getting little tasters of all the different specialties, doing four months in, in, in um, different specialties for two years. And then by then, most people have got a feel for what they want to do. And so the people who want to become surgeons, they then go down the route of surgical training. And that, depending on which specialty they go into, they start with basic training and then it goes into slightly more specialized training and then into super um, specialized training. And then they get all their qualifications and then usually they do a thing called a fellowship for a year where they really are super, super specialized. So all in all, I mean, my day, it took a long time because it was dead man's shoes that you had to apply for jobs every year. Now they're all in programs. So in general surgery, you're probably looking at from the day they qualify another 12 years before they are consultants. Tell me. We'll talk about the NHS in depth in a moment, but our health service in this country, how does it compare to other countries? Uh, well, I, I'm very privileged in that I've seen a lot of health services in a lot of countries. And of course, even within our own country, there are huge variations in standards. I, I mean, I, again, am very privileged. I work in a trust uh, at Whiston and St. Helens that wins awards every year as the best place to work, as the best acute hospital in the UK. And so I have a, a slightly biased view. So when I go to other hospitals in this country, and I'm, I'm talking about this country, sometimes I go and I feel really sorry for firstly, the people who work there. And secondly, the patients who have to go there. But then going to other countries, just because countries are rich, doesn't necessarily mean that they get better treatment. An example of that is recently I was giving some talks um, in India and one of the surgeons I was working with explained to me that they have a huge amount of tourist medicine, meaning people go to India for their surgery, but they go from places that are very rich, like the Middle East. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, they go from there to India because the stand, even though Abu Dhabi and Dubai are phenomenally rich, they go and they choose to go to India because the standard of care there would be better. And I see, and but again, within those countries, you can see huge variations in the standards of care. 
So I think we get a pretty good deal in the UK. Okay, the NHS is struggling a bit at the moment, but that doesn't mean the care is struggling or that the, the doctors aren't good enough. It means that it is somewhat overwhelmed, I suppose, by the, the amount of work. I get cross. Let's stay with the NHS now. I get cross when I hear people really having a go at the NHS. We've had a major epidemic. We've had major problems. Surgery and hospitals and doctors are costing vast amounts of money. We have lost a lot of people to the private sector. It's not as simple as saying, I've waited this long. It's not that easy, is it? No, no, it's not. And. Uh... And there are so many things. Obviously, I can only talk from a surgeon's point of view, but the frustration factor is enormous. When the winter comes and there are no beds for anybody because it's called winter pressures, so much surgery is cancelled. But we don't cancel clinics, so we're still topping the tank up, if you like, but not emptying the tank of patients who need surgeries. And then during the whole COVID thing, yeah, that, that was difficult too. Now, again, in my trust, we, ad we addressed that and we worked out a way of doing cancer operations, even though many hospitals, in fact, most hospitals on Merseyside stopped all their, can even their cancer operations. In fact, we took on the cancer operations from other hospitals into St. Helens and Knowsley. But there is still a backlog and, and it, we try wherever we can. I certainly try in my practice to move things along. I mean, I mentioned to you earlier that I, I operate most Sundays and the reason for that now, that's on NHS patients, is so that we can try and keep on top of the waiting lists. Do we lose a lot of, we'll stick with surgery, with surgeons because we're talking to you, do we lose a lot to other countries and do we lose a lot to private? It, it depends on the specialty. I think, I think in, in some specialties, like say for example, like um, plastic surgery and to some extent eye surgery, there is there is a lot of attraction for people to become full-time private surgeons. But the majority of surgeons in the UK and the majority of people in those, in those specialties as well, in plastics and eyes and ENT, they are still working for the NHS. They'll have a hybrid system. They'll work sometimes for the NHS, sometimes for themselves. I don't think we're losing that many people. Certainly if you work in a good trust, then it's a pleasure to go to work. I imagine if if you worked in a place that was not so supportive or not so good, there would be more temptation to leave. But if you leave, where do you go, Peter? Do you leave the specialty? Do you leave the profession? Um, do you leave, just leave the country? And it is difficult to leave the country permanently to go and work somewhere else. I know a lot of young doctors travel and like to travel and it's quite at the moment it's very attractive to go to Australia and New Zealand to work but they those doctors represent a small proportion of all the doctors we train Mike Sott we've spoken over the years on my radio show many times and I always remember one that stayed with me when you were going looking for surgeons you were going to different countries tell us about that because that was fascinating okay so it's not specifically for surgeons um, when I was 
if you like, the head of surgery at our hospital. I knew a bit more about the finances and we were paying absolutely through the nose for locum doctors. So we had gaps in rotors and particularly once the rules changed about how much on call you could do and how many hours you could work, we were paying Oh, a fortune, Peter. We were paying 70, 80 pounds an hour for people to come and work. And um, and that that soon clocks up a huge total. And at the time, I had two doctors working with me. And we're talking about junior doctors now, not senior doctors. But I had two doctors working with me who trained in the Czech Republic. One was English, one was Portuguese. And I got talking to them and they both trained at a medical school in a city called Brno in the Czech Republic. And I looked into it a bit more and I went to Brno and I went to the medical school and I met the dean. And, and to be honest, I was a bit embarrassed because I was expecting to go and see something very third worldy, nothing like that. Beautiful facilities. OK, in an old Eastern Bloc part of the Czech Republic, but beautiful f facilities. And what they did was... They take local Czech and Slovak students and train them in Czech. But they also had a, a stream of international students that they taught in English. So my theory was, if we go out there and we attract a few doctors to come and work in our trust, I thought we would just attract the English ones, but no, we attracted people from all over the world. And in the early days, it was, we could only really employ the Europeans, but since Brexit, we can employ people from all over the world and they come and they work for us for two years. And in the first year alone, which is 10 years ago now, we saved the trust two million pounds. And that was just with 10 doctors. This year, we've recruited 27 of those doctors. I was in the Czech Republic um, a couple of months ago interviewing and we recruited them. Um, it's now a very popular program and um, it, we don't just take them from Brno now, we take them from Prague and a couple of other cities and they've been phenomenal. They're like sponges. They come and they soak up the knowledge. They, they've got the theoretic knowledge. They maybe don't have as much practical knowledge, but it's saved the hospital millions. Mike, has Brexit changed us with uh, your job and the NHS, in your opinion? Um it's changed, right, it's changed things a little bit in that it's now um, slightly more difficult to recruit European doctors and they have to have visas, whereas before, if you were European, you didn't need a visa. But, you know, the GMC, the General Medical Council and the hospitals, they've worked together on that and now it's easy to get visas for doctors. Um, the, so from a doctoring point, and it also means we can take doctors from other parts of the world much more easily because they just need the same visa. It has had some problems in that the equipment that we use, a lot of it comes from Europe. So, for example, in one of the branches of surgery I do, we insert this incredibly expensive material into people's tummies, tummy walls. And we had a situation that because of Brexit, this material was stuck in somewhere in Holland in a container and it went off 
millions of pounds worth and we, we weren't paying for it the company obviously lost it but it means that there have been shortages and quite often we'll go to work and ask for and as a surgeon I'll ask for a certain stitch or a certain device and they'll say sorry we haven't got any they're on back order and the back order is nearly always Brexit initiated wow there's been strikes and there'll be more strikes i'm not going to put you on the spot with that but i'm going to mention one thing which is really interesting we talked and heard about the junior doctors going on strike i'm not going to mention that i want to know why they're called junior doctors because they don't they're not ex so in other words explain what a junior doctor is and why hasn't the name been changed Okay, well, so firstly, so that we're not dancing around it, I am hugely supportive of what the junior doctors are doing, that they have, on, on a relative basis, their pay has dropped dramatically. And if th there was a really good article, I think it was in The Guardian, might have been The Sunday Times, showing how the rate of pay for doctors and for the medical profession, and particularly the junior doctors, has plummeted in relative... Um, percentages compared with other professions and trades but anyway let's get off that a junior doctor is anybody who's not a consultant and it's a tr it's just an old-fashioned term and now so if you come through a training program you start off as a foundation doctor then you become um, a, a core trainee then you become a specialist trainee and then you become a consultant so anybody less than a consultant on that program is a junior doctor but then there's a parallel program whereby people come in who may be experienced, but they don't want to be in that competitive atmosphere. And they become what's called staff grade doctors, but they're still not consultants and they are still lumped together with junior doctors. I agree with you. It's archaic um, and it should be changed. It's almost like there's only two types of doctors, junior doctors and consultants or junior doctors and GPs. But you see, you're saying all this, which is fascinating, but in my head now, I'm thinking, as junior doctor, it's a young lad who's not a doctor yet, and how many people listening will say the same? Yeah, oh no, I mean, depending on the specialty you go into, you could be nearly 40 before you get a <laughs> consultant job. And, and if, so, uh, 39 you might still be a junior doctor and the next day when you become a consultant you're then not a junior doctor anymore so yes they're junior doctors probably most of them in the uk come out of medical school age 23 24 around that so they are junior doctors from that age until they reach their goal so ladies and gentlemen you now know what a junior doctor is once and for all looking back uh, in your medical, uh, with your medical head on, and what we've been through. First of all, have you in your life ever experienced anything like what we've just been through with the pandemic? And secondly, where, in your opinion, are we up to? No, the, I mean, I would hope I never go through anything like that again, um, like the pandemic. Um, it was, it, I mean, it seems so far away now, doesn't it? But it, it was actually at one point quite frightening and even uh, for you yeah i remember I, I mean i mentioned this to you before on your radio show i back in 2020 it was the easter weekend and every consultant surgeon in my hospital was called in on good friday and the and the medical director stood in front of us all and said you will now be running the wards 
because we're going to be so short of people and this is how many people died yesterday and this is how many people will die this week and this is how many people are probably going to die in the next year and suddenly uh, I mean I did a short spell on the intensive care unit and it was shocking Peter it really was and um, and then we we adapted people stepped up to the plate it was phenomenal and and I know we everybody went outside and clapped and banged saucepans on Thursdays for the NHS. It was phenomenal being part of it in the hospital. It was like, um, you know, like a wartime blitz experience, you know, that because you just had to do what there was to be done. And it, it and it's just a, feels like a distant memory now. But so where we're at now, yes, people are getting COVID. People, um, people get staff every now and then will phone up and say, I can't come in, I've got COVID, which means they've done a test. Let's face it, Peter, how many people are doing tests anymore? People come to work with a cold. The wards, on one of the wards that I work on just recently, they had COVID on the ward. The ward didn't close. It just meant when you went on that ward, you had to take extra precautions. We're living with it. We've learned to adapt. We've got there. Mike, I get upset. It's not your expertise, but you'll know about it. I get upset when people complain about the waiting times in A&E. And what annoys me is if you actually break it down, some people are wasting the time of the people in A&E. One of the biggest problems to me is if you're there and I was in A&E not so long ago, touch wood, and I was there a long time, but I was there a long time because they took blood tests. They then had to get the results of the blood test. Then they take other tests. So all of a sudden, those hours that I'm there, I'm there for a reason. Yeah, and and there are two aspects of that, aren't there? The first aspect is, yes, you had all those tests and you had x-rays or whatever, and that takes time. But that's not what people, are, once people have started having interactions, they don't really complain. The problem is, is the amount of time that people are having to wait before they're actually seen by anybody. And, and that is a difficulty. And there are lots of reasons why that's happening. And, and I mean, as you said, I'm not an expert in emergency room medicine, but the fact is, it is more difficult to get a GP appointment. It is more difficult to get a face-to-face -face appointment with either GP or the nurse. Um, it's not impossible, but it is more difficult. Um, People have a different expectation now. They want instant results. So the days of going to a doctor, the doctor saying, oh, let's just try this. That's gone. People want an instant fix. So where do you go to? You go to the emergency room. Now, we are lucky in that we have pharmacies that can offer advice. We have um, other um, elements that you can contact. You can contact the NHS and get advice. And the advice might not always be what you're looking for. And the advice might sometimes be you need to go to an emergency room. But all of those have a culminative effect, meaning that you're going to wait longer. And that's part of the problem. I have taken the advice and used my pharmacist a lot more. What's your views on that? Um, yourself? Well, it's horses for courses. If it's something that the pharmacist can help with, I think that's great. As long as people don't start giving advice 
that they're not qualified to give advice for. Now, pharmacists, they are professionals, they know about drugs, they know about the conditions that the drugs treat. So that I think that it's a good place to start. Um, I, I do sometimes have some reservations um, that some people get advice that may not be the best advice in the world. And I'm not talking about pharmacists now. Sometimes it can be um, because they're seeing somebody who's perhaps less qualified. Let's for say, for example, in a general practitioner's office, they may see the nurse rather than the doctor. Now, some of the nurses that work, particularly the um, advanced practitioners, are amazing, but they still don't have quite the same breadth of knowledge that a a very experienced doctor would have. They'll develop it in time, but it's important that those practitioners don't give advice based on, oh, I wonder what I really think. They should give advice based on genuine facts and genuine knowledge. And that's difficult because there aren't a huge number of people who have years and years and years of experience in the profession. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I have um, witnessed now a lot more people going to private doctors, yep. which I was surprised about. And recently on television, when I was reviewing the papers, uh, they were talking about 550. £550 a visit in Harley Street. Uh, some friends of mine go to doctors up here and it's about £100, £125. More and more people are doing it. And it's not really private medicine, is it? It's, it's not like having a, a certificate. It's just going because they're frustrated. Yes, and, and, and there are a large number of clinics that you can go to with no waiting time um, to see a primary care physician. Um, and let's, not, let's take secondary care out of it you know that the, the medical specialties let's just dwell on gps because that's what most people want and yes some people are paying for that because they want to pay for it because they don't want to wait for an appointment they've had enough yes yes and i think I, the only advice i would say is make sure you research who you're going to look at them google them look at what other people have to say about them and if you find positive results, and I'm on about four or five different search engines that rely on feedback um, about my practice. So that I know that if people search me online, they'll see what I do, what people think about me and whether I'm safe and good to go to. And that's what everybody should do about anybody, any medical professional they're seeing. Mike, to finish off, and you know I could talk to you forever, you're a fascinating man. If anybody wants to go into the medical profession, whether it's a nurse, doctor, whatever, there is a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work and a lot of time. What's your advice? It's a vocation, Peter. Um, it's not an easy option. All I can tell you is I've never regretted a single day of going into medical school and then medicine. I, and, you know, as I get more senior, what worries me more is having to leave the profession at some point and how, how I will achieve that. So I would say if you, you don't have to be, you don't have to think, for example, oh, I'm not a caring person, or, oh, I'm not a kind person, oh, I can't bear illness. 
you just have to look at what it would give you back and whether that's you're a nurse a doctor somebody in any of the um, supportive networks in hospitals or in GP if it's something you think you could do you should do it because it's incredibly satisfying and rewarding you just mentioned about leaving eventually um, what I think is very sad not just you but people of a certain age who've got all that skill we're losing something aren't we we are and um, I mean I I like to feel that I can still do it um, despite being nearly 70 I think that I'm still surgically able to do what I do and other people think the same I think that I've got the wealth of experience that you don't get from books but what I've done is I've learned to adapt my practice to fit in with my age and my abilities and so I'd like to think I've still got two or three years left in the tank but I may change the way that I work but you will lecture yeah, yeah, I love lecturing, um, but I'll be honest with you, Peter, I'm always a bit funny about people who lecture and don't do. And um, I see people who, do, who talk all the time, who probably haven't picked up a scalpel for five years. When I finish operating, I will probably finish talking about it. Um, but I might write a book about it, so watch this space. And last question... What, and it's a big question, but just keep it simple-ish. Oh, God. <laughs> believe I'm asking this. What do you think is going to happen with the NHS? Um, I think it's struggling. And I think the government, which whoever the government will be, will struggle with it. I, I saw something recently saying um, that the, gov the current government were, were going to encourage more medical schools to take more students and more nurses to be taken on i think that's only part of the problem i think it's an, an incredibly expensive commodity i think there's a lot of wastage financial wastage in the national health service um, which could be addressed i think ultimately it will become an emergency and cancer service and Everything else, people will have to financially contribute towards. And that's your views? That's my personal views. I, and I, I can't see how it can survive otherwise. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.